The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions regarding particularly heinous sexual assaults and torture. Please take care before listening. On May 27, 1991, a call came into the front desk of the Palm Springs Ramada Inn. The caller was 33-year-old Susan Schnell, a guest at the hotel. Shockingly, Schnell told the hotel employee that she had been sexually assaulted and her throat had been slit. When first responders arrived, paramedics stabilized Schnell enough to transport her to Desert Hospital. She was in critical condition, but fortunately, she survived. Police quickly arrested her attacker in the parking lot of the hotel. When investigators questioned the man about the attack on Schnell, they got much more than they bargained for. He admitted not only to the abduction and assault of Susan Schnell, but he also told police where they could find the body of a young woman in Seattle whom he had murdered the previous Friday. Detectives called King County Police in Washington, who then discovered the body of a young woman inside the trunk of her own car. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of Holly Washa. This case takes us to Seattle, Washington. Located between Puget Sound and Lake Washington, Seattle is the 15th largest city in the U.S. The first white settlers arrived in the area in 1851 and named the town in honor of Chief Seattle of the Suquamish and Duwamish tribes. Logging was the major industry of Seattle until the late 1800s when shipbuilding took over. After the Second World War, The Boeing Company, which was founded in Seattle, made the city one of the centers of planning manufacturing for the U.S. In the 1980s, Seattle began to develop into a technology center as companies such as Microsoft, Amazon, Nintendo, Google, and Expedia began operations there. Starbucks, Nordstrom, and Trident Seafoods are also based in the city. Seattle has a rich music tradition and is widely associated with grunge music, giving birth to groups like Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam. It is in this musically rooted city where law enforcement would discover the body of 21-year-old Holly Washa. Holly Carol Washa was born in Ogallala, Nebraska on August 12, 1969, to parents John and Dorothy Washa. She had two sisters, Becky and Karen, and a brother named Roger. Another brother, Paul, had died as an infant in 1966. The Washa children grew up on a 360-acre farm. After graduating from Ogallala High School in 1987, Holly moved to Vancouver, Washington, in hopes of becoming a flight attendant. In 1988, the same year she moved to Vancouver, tragedy struck when Holly's mother, Dorothy, died. After her mother's death, Holly moved forward with pursuing her career goal, 
She took a three-month course at the International Air Academy in Vancouver. But after finishing the course, she struggled to land a job with the airlines. At that point, Holly moved to Burien, Washington, a suburb of Seattle, where she got a job as a housekeeper at a motel. She later found work as a dispatcher at Telecommunications, Inc., a cable TV company. On May 23, 1991, 21-year-old Holly Washa was leaving the Wyndham Garden Hotel near the SeaTac Airport in Seattle. She had just quit her part-time housekeeping job and was pulling out of a parking space when she saw a man trying to get her attention. When she stopped, the man walked up to her car and pointed at one of her tires, as if he was trying to tell her she had a flat. Then, he suddenly opened the car door, pulled out a knife, and forced his way into Holly's car. He held the knife to her throat and told Holly to drive or she was dead. The man grabbed Holly's purse and started looking through it for money. He had her drive to the bank and then forced her to write him a check for the balance in her bank account. He then asked Holly about her and her roommate's schedules and where they worked. He made Holly call in sick to work so no one would try contacting her when she didn't show up. The man had her drive to a store where he purchased a pair of handcuffs. Before he went inside, the man tied Holly up in her car so she wouldn't escape while he was away. Then, Holly's abductor took her to the Shadow Motel on South 176th Street, where, for the next 34 hours, he repeatedly tortured and sexually assaulted her. Horrifying details of Holly's assault emerged later. During the assault, Holly's attacker noticed that she was looking at the door of the motel room. He thought she might be planning to escape, so he made her move from being face up to face down. He handcuffed her hands behind her back, gagged her mouth, and proceeded to whip her. The day following the assault, the man took Holly to her apartment while her roommate was at work. He searched the home for valuables and found some blank checks belonging to her roommate. He tried to cash them, but the bank refused to honor them because the signatures didn't match. This made the man angry, and afterward, he took Holly back to the motel, tied her to the bed, handcuffed her hands behind her back, and sexually assaulted her again. This time, however, the torture intensified. The man penetrated Holly with a bottle. He then proceeded to do something very odd and extremely brutal, something that would surely be a focus point for any professional seeking to know who this perpetrator was and what made him tick. The man shaved Holly's pubic hair and put a hairdryer up to her vagina, breasts, and abdomen, causing burns. Then, he cut the end of an extension cord off and used the live end to shock Holly. That evening, Holly's abductor drove her to the parking lot of a travel agency. He handcuffed her with hands behind her back and told her to get into the trunk. The man took his knife out and slashed Holly three times in the throat, chest, and abdomen. He then strangled her. When he was done, the man closed the trunk of Holly's car and started to walk away until he noticed Holly's blood leaking from the trunk. Spooked by this, the man got back into Holly's car and drove it to the parking lot 
of a budget park and ride. He then walked off, leaving Holly to die. Her killer had a flight to catch back to California. On May 20th, a few days before he abducted Holly, her killer met a woman on a plane during his flight to Seattle, 33-year-old Susan Schnell. In a fake Australian accent, he told her that he was a home designer. Schnell gave the man her phone number, and they made plans to meet at the SeaTac airport, where she would be stopping for a layover before returning to California. The two of them hit it off during dinner and made plans to get together in Palm Springs, California the weekend after. After she returned to California, Schnell received a call from the man, and the two of them made arrangements to meet on Saturday. She had no idea at the time that the man was calling from the motel room where Holly, whom he had been torturing and sexually assaulting for hours, was tied up in a bed next to him. On Saturday, Schnell and the man drove to Palm Springs to do some sightseeing. The next day, they were staying at a Ramada Inn together. In their hotel room, the man offered to give Schnell a back rub. Suddenly, he jerked her arms behind her and told her not to scream. Still, Schnell screamed, and the man cut her throat. During the attack, Schnell said the man told her he just needed money. He used tampons and pantyhose to stop the blood from coming out of her neck. He then shaved her pubic hair and raped her. After he finished, he forced her to write a check to him for $4,000. When the man saw that his victim was bleeding heavily from her throat, he left to buy bandages. Upon his return, the man tried to gag Schnell by putting a sock in her mouth, but stopped when she began coughing up blood. He left their hotel room again, with Schnell tied to the bed. While he was gone, she was able to reach the phone and call the front desk. When help arrived, Schnell was rushed to the hospital, and her attacker was arrested in the parking lot of the hotel as he returned from the store. In custody, the violent man was identified as being 33-year-old Cal Coburn Brown. As it turned out, Brown had a lot to say to investigators as he was being questioned about the attack on Susan Schnell. If you love podcasts, you will also love Audible, one of the most well-known providers of spoken word entertainment. With Audible, you can listen to best-selling audiobooks and now podcasts. I've been listening to audiobooks on Audible for years. One of my favorites was Leah Remini's book titled Troublemaker, Surviving Hollywood and Scientology. I love that I can listen to my favorite books while doing laundry, working out, or during a long commute. I also love that unlike reading a book with Audible, you can sometimes hear books narrated by the author, which makes it much more of a personal experience. I'm really excited about the newly launched Audible Plus, where I can access even more content from select originals to audiobooks, podcasts, and exclusive series. The seemingly endless library includes so many great genres like comedy, suspense, true crime, fitness and wellness, and more. You get all of this entertainment with one simple app, 
and you can listen on many different devices, including Alexa. I'm always on the go, which leaves little time to sit down and read a book. Audible allows me to binge so many great titles and get things done at the same time. Visit audible.com murderish or text murderish to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash murderish or text murderish to 500-500. After listening to so much true crime content, can we all agree that personal safety is top priority? I recently learned about Pepperball, a company that makes handheld personal safety products that are used by law enforcement, homeland defense, the military, and the government. When I take my dog for a walk, go hiking, or leave my house for any reason, I've been taking with me Pepperball's LifeLite Mobile Launcher. It's small enough to carry in my hand, but powerful enough to launch a non-lethal Pepperball on a creeper up to 40 feet away. The food-grade irritant will stick around for about 15 minutes, more than enough time to get to safety. By my bedside, I keep Pepperball's larger LifeLite launcher, which holds five non-lethal rounds. There's an LED flashlight on it, so I'm sure to hit my target. Pepperball even makes a compact safety product that is the perfect size for your purse, purse, fanny pack, or whatever you carry. And don't worry, Pepperball's products look nothing like a gun, so you can feel safe taking them just about anywhere. For those of you who aren't into guns, but still want to know you're protected, Pepperball has got you covered. For kick-ass personal safety products, visit pblifelight.com and enter code MURDERISH10 for a 10% discount in the new year. That's pblifelite.com. Enter code MURDERISH10 for 10% off in the new year. The arresting officer, Lieutenant Glenn Haas of the Cathedral City PD, said that when he saw Brown in the parking lot of the Ramada Inn, there was only a couple of directions he could go. I ran out, and there was a man walking down Palm Canyon, as if it was an early morning stroll, handcuffed him, found the weapon in his pocket, still had blood on it, still stained. This, according to an article, at kpsplocal2.com, dated September 10th, 2020. According to the same kpsplocal2.com article, Haas said that after Brown confessed to the attack on Schnell, that he said something to the effect of, I have something else to tell you, and you better get something to write with. He tells them the Palm Springs detectives a story about abducting this young girl in Washington and they would find her body in the trunk of a car at SeaTac Airport in Seattle. Police soon learned that Brown had a prior criminal record of assault with a deadly weapon, grand theft, attempted assault, assault, attempted murder, aggravated mayhem, torture, false imprisonment, and robbery. They also found out that he had just been paroled in March after serving time for sexual assault. Brown admitted to the attack, abduction, and sexual assault of Susan Schnell, as well as the murder of Holly Washa in Washington. He told the officers he killed Holly so he wouldn't leave any witnesses behind. 
He said he abducted her because he needed the money. As it turned out, Brown needed money in order to catch a flight back to California to spend time with Susan Schnell. According to a September 10, 2010 Mercury News article, Palm Springs PD Lieutenant Al Franz said about Brown, This is a violent individual, and he was just very, very calm while he was telling the story. The lack of remorse was pretty incredible to me. The way he spoke about his victims, they weren't people to him. In 1983, Cal Brown, then 25 years old, was taking classes at Oregon State University in Corvallis. On one particular day, he went to the home of a female acquaintance. Carrying a backpack, he talked his way into her house by saying he had been injured while jogging and that he needed to rest. When she turned her back to call him a cab, Brown pulled a leather thong out of his backpack, put it around the woman's neck, and tried to strangle her. Luckily, the thong caught the woman on her bottom lip, and she managed to scream as she was yanked off her feet. The scream scared Brown enough that he ran out of her house. The woman's two young sons were also home at the time of the attack. As he ran out of the woman's house, Brown was seen by a police officer who was writing a traffic ticket nearby and who had heard the woman's screams. The officer chased Brown, caught him, and eventually arrested him. Brown told the officer the attack was just a misunderstanding and that he was only trying to give the woman a back rub. The officer searched the backpack Brown had with him and inside, he found a leather thong along with a knife and a roll of duct tape. Brown was charged with assault, attempted rape, and attempted murder. At his trial in 1984, Brown was convicted of assaulting the woman, but acquitted of attempted murder and attempted rape. Benton County, Oregon District Attorney Peter Sandrock Jr. spoke about the acquittal of the higher charges. According to a Longview Daily News article dated May 30, 1991, D.A. Sandrock said, Anytime you've got an attempted crime, you've got to show the jury what might have happened. It's a speculative endeavor for them. They weren't willing to take that jump. Brown received a psychological evaluation which concluded in a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. Given that he had previously been convicted of numerous crimes, including assault, Brown was declared a dangerous offender by Judge Robert Gardner and sentenced to 15 years in prison for the attack on his acquaintance. After serving about seven years of his 15-year sentence, Brown came up for parole. At the time, Judge Gardner, who'd sentenced him, was compelled to write a letter to the parole board stating, Mr. Brown is preoccupied with violence, weapons, and forcible sexual fantasies, according to an article by Alan Gustafson dated September 20, 1992, in the Statesman Journal. In January of 1991, D.A. Sandrock also sent a letter to the parole board asking them not to release Brown. Sandrock believed Brown was a dangerous sexual predator who could evolve into a killer, calling him in his letter 
one of the most dangerous criminals I have prosecuted in the past 16 years. Unless he has undergone a remarkable transformation in prison, he will remain a potential mutilator and killer of women. If your rules permit him to be kept in prison beyond the minimum, please do so. Every day he is confined is another day he cannot attack women. This according to an Albany Democrat Herald article dated May 29, 1991. Despite the written pleas from Judge Gardner and D.A. Sandrock and Brown's status as a dangerous offender, he was released from prison in 1991 after serving half of his 15-year sentence. Dr. Donald Crane, a psychiatrist at the Oregon State Hospital, had told the parole board that he saw improvement in Brown and believed that his antisocial personality disorder was in remission. Brown had also been a model prisoner and participated in a counseling program while incarcerated. These factors heavily influenced the parole board's decision to release him. After Brown was granted parole, he rented an apartment and again signed up for classes at Oregon State University. He was assigned to parole officer Larry Wibbenmeyer, who specialized in the supervision of sex offenders. Brown was ordered to comply with all terms of his parole, which included informing Wibbenmeyer if he was going to be away from home for more than 24 hours. D.A. Sandrock, who prosecuted Brown, again felt compelled to speak out about the danger he believed Brown posed to society. Sandrock gave Wibbenmeyer a copy of his letter to the parole board, saying he considered Brown to be one of the most dangerous defendants he ever prosecuted. For about two months, Wibbenmeyer believed that Brown had met his parole terms, and then, on May 14th, he was unable to contact Brown. He went by his residence for an unscheduled home visit, but Brown wasn't home. He returned on the 14th, 16th, and 17th, but the parolee never answered. On the 17th, Wibbenmeyer left his business card on Brown's door with a note telling him to contact him, but Wibbenmeyer never received a call. On May 20th, Wibbenmeyer got a call from a man in Eugene, Oregon, who said he had sold his car to Cal Brown and that Brown's check had bounced. The P.O. returned to Brown's apartment, but no one answered the door, and the business card he'd left on the 17th was still there. Wibbenmeyer knew Brown's schedule and went to his class that morning at Oregon State University. The parolee wasn't there. Wibbenmeyer asked his supervisor about applying for a warrant for Brown's arrest, but was told there probably was not enough evidence yet to show that Brown had violated his parole. Wibbenmeyer went back to Brown's apartment that afternoon and left a note asking him to call him immediately. On May 21st or 22nd, Wibbenmeyer called Brown and left a message on his answering machine warning him that if he did not return the call within 24 hours, a warrant would be issued for his arrest. After not hearing anything, on May 23rd, Wibbenmeyer requested an arrest warrant from the Oregon Board of Parole. The request was granted, but at the time, he had no idea where Brown was. 
it would later be learned that Brown had abducted and murdered Holly Washa during the time he could not be located by his parole officer. Following Brown's confession on May 28th, the day after Holly's body was found, King County Police said that they would be seeking to extradite him from California to be prosecuted for Holly's murder in Washington. That same day, an autopsy was performed on Holly's body by King County Medical Examiner Donald T. Ray. Dr. Ray found that the stabbing and slicing of Holly's throat took at least two motions with a knife to be inflicted. He found that her pubic hair had been shaved. Bruising was found on her face, the inside and outside of her vaginal areas, and her anus. The vaginal and anal injuries were determined to be from forced penetration with a hard object that was consistent with an aftershave bottle found in Brown's hotel room, which he had also used on Susan Schnell. Holly's nipples had abrasions and a pattern of bruising consistent with being whipped by a belt or cord. Her inner thighs also showed bruising consistent with being whipped. Her feet and ankles were bruised, which was consistent with being restrained. There were stab and slicing wounds to Holly's chest and abdomen. On her inner thigh area appeared to be a wound from burning. The stab wounds on Holly's body were consistent with the blade of the knife found on Brown when he was arrested. Dr. Ray concluded that the causes of death were an extensive incised wound to Holly's neck and strangulation by ligature using a rigid knot from the leather strap on her purse. Dr. Ray believed the strangulation occurred first due to hemorrhaging in Holly's eyes. On June 10th, King County Prosecutor Senior Deputy Al Matthews told reporters that his office had charged Brown with aggravated murder. If convicted, the admitted murderer would receive a sentence of either death or life without the possibility of parole. In 1991, aggravated murder was the only crime in the state of Washington that carried the possibility of a death sentence. For prosecutors to file this charge, they must be able to prove that a defendant committed additional crimes against the murder victim. In Brown's case, regarding Holly Washa, the prosecution believed that he committed robbery, rape, and kidnapping. For the attack on Susan Schnell, Cal Brown pleaded not guilty to first-degree attempted murder, false imprisonment, torture, aggravated mayhem, and first-degree robbery with special circumstances, using a knife and inflicting great bodily injury. Judge Philip LaRocca remanded Brown without bail and ordered him transferred to the Riverside County Jail for trial. Susan had survived the terrifying ordeal, although she had undergone surgery on her neck to repair the severe cut that Brown inflicted on her. By August 30th, Brown had changed his tune and pleaded guilty to all charges for the attack on Schnell in exchange for a plea deal. On September 28th, a hearing was held in Washington where the prosecution argued that jurors should hear about Brown's attack on Susan Schnell during his trial for the murder of Holly Washa. Prosecutor Teresa Fricke 
said that Holly's murder was related to the attack on Schnell because Brown admitted that he had abducted Holly to get money for the plane ticket he needed to meet with Susan in California. Brown's attorney, Kern Clevin, said there was no clear evidence that the crimes were related, and allowing the jury to hear details of the crimes against Susan would prejudice jurors. King County Judge Ricardo Martinez ruled in the prosecution's favor, saying the jury could hear about the attack on Susan. On February 21, 1992, Brown was extradited from California to Seattle, Washington, to face charges for Holly's murder. On February 26, he pleaded not guilty to all charges. The following month, the King County prosecutor announced that his office had filed notice to seek the death penalty for Brown if convicted. The prosecutor said, the murder of Holly Washa was committed with a high degree of premeditation and savagery. This is one of the most sadistic crimes in recent memory. This according to a Corvallis Gazette Times article dated March 25, 1992. In August, during a court hearing, Brown's confession to Holly's murder, which he made to his parole officer over the phone, came under scrutiny. When Brown was arrested for attacking Susan Schnell in Palm Springs, he had asked to speak with his parole officer, Larry Wibbenmeyer. The two men spoke for over three hours, during which time Brown told Wibbenmeyer about murdering Holly. Both sides argued whether that confession should be admissible during trial. Brown's attorney said the confession should not be admissible because Wibbenmeyer did not inform Brown of his Fifth Amendment right of counsel when he confessed. They also said that Brown was unaware that the conversation between him and Wibbenmeyer was being recorded, and Washington State requires that police have permission before recording conversations. Prosecutor Al Matthews said Wibbenmeyer did not need to advise Brown on his right to counsel because the Palm Springs detectives had done so prior to Brown making the call. He said the call had been Brown's idea, and that Brown made the confession before Wibbenmeyer could have intervened to inform him of his right to counsel. As far as needing permission for the recording, Matthew said that the recording was made in California, not Washington, and the state of California does not require consent to record conversations for suspects in custody, nor does the suspect even need to be informed that they are being recorded. Brown's attorney said that since their client was being charged in Washington, that Washington law should apply, not California law. Superior Court Judge Ricardo Martinez ruled that the confession was admissible. While all of the usual back and forth was happening leading up to Brown's trial, Holly's family expressed their anger that he had even been granted parole. Holly's father saw no reason why such a dangerous person would be granted parole considering the heinous nature of his previous crimes against women. Meanwhile, jury selection for Brown's trial began on October 25, 1993 and a jury of eight men and four women were chosen. Al Matthews led the prosecution, while Terry Mulligan would lead the defense team. 
during opening statements, according to 1997 direct appeal documents from State v. Brown, Prosecutor Matthews said, I want to assure you, at the end of this case, you're not going to look at me and say, did he do it? I suggest you're going to look at me and you're going to say, how could he have done it? And, you know, that's one question that I won't be able to answer for you. I don't have to answer it all for you. I can't imagine how any one person could have done this to Holly Washa or to any other living human being. How could he have done it? During the defense's opening arguments, Mulligan asked for a mistrial because of Matthew's statement, saying it was used to appeal to the emotions of the jury. The motion was denied. With Brown's confession being ruled admissible, his defense team had to concentrate on trying to save their client's life and have him convicted of a lesser charge than aggravated murder. Medical examiner Dr. Donald T. Ray, who performed the autopsy on Holly's body, testified to her wounds and the similarities to those Brown inflicted upon Susan Schnell in California. On December 6th, Susan Schnell was called as a witness. The defense objected to her testimony, claiming it was inadmissible and prejudicial. The prosecution countered, saying it was admissible due to the similarities of the attacks on both women and that the probative value outweighed any prejudice it might have on the jury. Prosecutor Matthew said the attack on Susan would show Holly's attack was intentional and premeditated because Brown admitted that he robbed Holly because he needed money for a plane ticket to meet with Susan in California. He also said her testimony would show the aggravating factors committed by Brown necessary for the aggravated murder charge. Judge Martinez ruled that Susan's testimony would be admissible. However, he did want the jury to limit what they took from it. Before Schnell testified, Judge Martinez told the jury that they should only consider her testimony in relation to whether the crimes committed against Holly were premeditated, intended, and towards the aggravating factors needed for a conviction of aggravated murder. On the witness stand, Schnell described to the jury how she and Brown met on a plane from Ontario, California to Seattle. Then they met at the Seattle airport for drinks and made plans to meet up in Palm Springs to spend Memorial Day weekend together. She said that while they were in the hotel room in Palm Springs, Brown began to give her a back rub and suddenly jerked her arms back and told her not to scream. As soon as she screamed, he slit her throat. She described the sexual assault, which was very similar to Brown's assault on Holly, except that he left to get bandages for her neck and Schnell was able to call for help. The prosecution pointed out similarities in the attacks on both women, which were, both women were sexually assaulted while incapacitated with handcuffs attached to a motel hotel bed. Both were sexually assaulted and tortured in similar ways. He forced both women to write checks to him, and he used the same knife to threaten both of them, slashing and stabbing Holly to death with it, and slashing Schnell's throat. During closing arguments on December 8th, prosecutor Teresa Fricke told the jury not to buy the defense's argument, 
that Cal Brown committed these crimes due to his abusive childhood. According to a December 9, 1993 Lincoln Star Journal article, Fricky told the jury, We should not even think about negotiating with Cal Brown. He didn't allow Holly Washa to negotiate. She didn't get to negotiate for her life. She didn't get to negotiate for her money. And she did not get to negotiate for her dignity. You should refuse any thought of negotiating with Cal Brown. The defense objected to the prosecutor's remarks during their closing arguments, asking again for a mistrial, saying that the prosecution was again appealing to the jury's emotions. Once the jury was let out of the courtroom, Judge Martinez heard both parties and ruled that the remarks made by Fricky were reasonable, and he had instructed the jury that the remarks were not evidence. During trial, prosecutors had played audio of Brown's statements to police in Palm Springs, describing his assault, torture, and murder of Holly. They said in closing arguments that his own words in that confession to his parole officer, Larry Wibbenmeyer, Prove that Holly's murder was premeditated, which was required for Brown to be convicted of aggravated first-degree murder. One of the defendant's attorneys, Lynn Marie Hupp, disagreed, saying that her client's actions showed that Holly's murder was a spur-of-the-moment act, claiming that based on Brown's own words, he panicked, and killing Holly was not his original intention. With that, Brown's fate was left in the jury's hands as they began deliberating on December 9th. The following day, they had reached a verdict. As Brown looked down at the defendant's table, Judge Martinez read the verdict. Cal Brown was convicted of the aggravated first-degree murder of Holly Washa. The jury would now decide whether he would be sentenced to death or be imprisoned for life without parole. According to a December 11, 1993 article by Elizabeth Dunham in the Spokesman Review, during the sentencing hearing, the prosecution said that Brown had been engorged with a deliberate desire to rape, rob, and kill for the purpose of satisfying his deviant sexual compulsions and his lust for money. The defense told the jury that Brown had suffered severe abuse as a child which led to him being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and sexual sadism. They pointed the finger at the system, saying that if Brown had been given the proper help, Holly and Susan's attacks may never have occurred. Like many of you, I've been working from home for months now, so I get to wear jeans to work. Although jeans are my favorite wardrobe staple, they are not always comfortable. Until I discovered Beta Brand Yoga Denim. Let me tell you about my skinny leg four pocket Beta Brand Yoga Denim. These have become one of my favorite pairs of jeans because they fit like a glove, they go with anything, and the added bonus, they feel like yoga pants. Trust me, you could do a downward dog followed by a cartwheel and land it without ever pulling at these jeans to readjust. Beta Brand has figured out how to make high-end jeans that look great and are comfortable enough to wear all day without pulling at the waistline. Beta Brand has so many other styles to choose from, like their staple dress pant yoga pants that don't wrinkle easily 
are just as comfortable as yoga pants, but completely stylish and office appropriate. They even have really cute Soho joggers that'll come in so handy as we've all been dressing more casually lately. Every single style of pants Beta Brand makes are centered around helping women look their best while also feeling comfortable and confident. Right now, my listeners can get 30% off their first Beta Brand order when you go to betabrand.com slash murderish. That's 30% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com slash murderish. Discover what it's like to be comfortable and confident all the time. Go to betabrand.com slash murderish for 30% off. I love gold jewelry and I wear it every day. I also love empowering women and now I've found a jewelry company where these two interests collide. Orate is a company founded by women that makes fabulous real gold jewelry that will not turn your skin green. Even after a heavy workout, Orate recently collabed with actress Carrie Washington on the Lioness Collection. Every single piece is fierce and inspired by an Egyptian goddess warrior. All of Orate's pieces are guaranteed for life because they are that confident in the quality of their product. From delicate gold band rings to gold statement necklaces to pieces with sparkly diamonds, Orate has pieces to go with any style or occasion. I wear my Orate stackable ring every single day. It goes with a t-shirt and joggers look and also with a dress and stilettos look. And it can be paired with other rings for a bolder look. Right now, you can check out the Lioness Collection and everything else Orate has. Get 15% off your first purchase when you go to oratenewyork.com murderish and use code murderish at checkout. That's Orate. A-U-R-A-T-E New York dot com slash murderish promo code murderish for 15% off. After taking a few days off for the holidays, on Monday, December 27th, the jury met for 30 minutes before announcing their decision. They concluded that Brown should be put to death for the abduction, sexual assault, torture, and murder of Holly Washa. At the time, only one aggravating factor was required to hand down a death sentence in Washington. Unless the defendant was developmentally disabled, which had not been argued during trial, Washington law made the jury's sentencing decision final. It did not allow the judge to change the defendant's sentence from death to life without parole. After being sentenced to death, a defendant's appeal was automatic and would go straight to the Washington State Supreme Court. Brown's appeal process was set to begin in late January. After trial, he was sent to death row at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Although Holly's family likely got the verdict they were hoping for, they would be victimized for many more years as the painfully long appeals process ran its course. When the jurors were asked later, they said that on December 23rd, before they broke for their holiday break, there was only one holdout for life without parole. Once they met on Monday morning, the 12th juror had joined the others and changed from life without parole to death. Jurors pointed out afterward that the recording of Brown's confession played for them during trial 
helped them decide on death. In the audio, jurors heard Cal Brown laughing while he described torturing Holly and detailing the things he did to her. The foreperson said guilty was the only verdict he could choose with the evidence presented. He said they took three votes before sending a message that they had reached a verdict. All three votes were 12 to 0 for death. On January 28, 1994, Brown's official sentencing hearing was held. Before Judge Martinez announced the sentence, Brown's attorneys filed motions to declare the death penalty unconstitutional, to vacate his death sentence, and to order a new trial. Once Judge Martinez denied the defense's motions, he formally sentenced Cal Brown to death. This would be the start of a years-long appeals process. Brown's first automatic appeal was argued to the Washington State Supreme Court on June 27, 1996. His attorneys presented 16 arguments they believed were errors of law made by the trial judge. On July 24, 1997, the Washington State Supreme Court issued its ruling, rejecting all 16 of Cal Brown's arguments. With that, his death sentence was upheld. In March of 1998, Brown's attorneys filed a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court to hear his appeal, but the court declined to hear the case. Judge Martinez signed Brown's death warrant on April 8, 1998, and set his execution to take place on May 13. Brown's defense team immediately filed an appeal, which was automatic per Washington law. The appeal would delay Brown's execution for at least two years. After Brown's state appeals had been exhausted, his attorneys petitioned for a writ of habeas corpus with the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. The petition was denied. On July 14, 2005, Brown's attorneys filed an appeal with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals against the Washington State Penitentiary. They had two main arguments, one of which was that three prospective jurors were improperly dismissed for cause. In particular, one juror said he believed in the death penalty, but thought it should only be used in severe situations. He thought it was proper when the defendant may later be released and hurt someone again, and that he could consider the death penalty if he was told that it was an option. The court ruled that the trial court properly dismissed two of the jurors, but that the third juror's dismissal violated Brown's Sixth and Fourteenth Amendment rights. On December 8, 2005, the Ninth Circuit Court overturned Brown's death sentence on the basis of a potential juror being improperly dismissed. The court said that the juror in question had not said he had any issues with the death penalty, but was removed from the jury anyway. After Brown's death sentence was overturned, the state of Washington filed a writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court. In January of 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court granted the state's request, agreeing to look at the Ninth Circuit Court's decision to overturn Brown's death sentence. Hawley's family was extremely frustrated over Brown's death sentence being overturned, 
believing it was not fair that he was alive after committing such a horrendous crime, a crime that would not have happened if Brown would have been denied parole for his previous brutal crime. Many people argue against the death penalty for this very reason, because the appeals process afterward forces the victim's loved ones to relive the tragedy. Others argue for the death penalty, citing that justice for such brutal crimes can only be achieved by handing down the ultimate penalty, death. On June 4, 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 ruling, reversed the decision of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, saying that the original trial court had acted properly by excusing the juror. The Supreme Court's ruling remanded the case back to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to hear it again. On June 27, 2008, the court agreed with the U.S. Supreme Court that the juror was in fact properly dismissed. With that decision, Brown's death sentence was reinstated. His execution was scheduled for March 13, 2009. Brown appealed again, this time to the Washington State Supreme Court and the Thurston County Superior Court. This appeal granted him a temporary stay of execution by the U.S. Federal Court until his appeals were decided. On March 9th, the Washington State Supreme Court denied Brown's petition for a stay of execution. Jeff Ellis of the Washington Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty agreed that Brown's crimes against Holly Washa were horrible, but said that his mental illness should be taken into consideration for his sentence. King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg strongly disagreed, saying, I've been in the prosecutor's office for 25 years, and I've seen a lot of shocking things. But looking at Cal Brown's sadistic torture spree, really, it is about the worst case I've ever seen. The question is whether it's sufficient to warrant leniency. This thinks quite the opposite. His behavior warrants the most serious penalty we can impose. This according to a Longview Daily News article by Shannon Denini, dated March 9, 2009. Back in 1994, Brown had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, formerly known as manic depression, is characterized by extreme mood swings. However, most studies do not show an increased violence among people with bipolar disorder alone, unless they are in a severe manic episode. When people diagnosed with bipolar disorder also suffer from another mental illness that includes psychosis, such as schizophrenia, or abuse drugs and or alcohol, the chance of violence and or criminal activity can increase significantly. On March 11th, two days before his scheduled execution, the Thurston County Superior Court denied Brown's request for a stay of execution. He filed yet another appeal with the Washington State Supreme Court, joining two other inmates in their lawsuit claiming the three-cocktail protocol used by the state of Washington constituted cruel and unusual punishment due to the pain it caused when injected into a person's veins. 
On March 12, the Washington State Clemency and Pardons Board met to determine whether or not to recommend to Washington Governor Christine Gregoire to grant clemency to Brown. It was only a recommendation. The governor was not bound by any decision the board might make. The board split two to two on whether or not to recommend clemency, so no recommendation was made either way. Holly's family had called into the meeting asking the board not to recommend clemency because they did not want any more delays. Cal Brown also called into the meeting to tell the board how sorry he was. According to a March 13, 2009 article in the Longview Daily News by Rachel LaCourt, Brown said about Holly, she haunts me to this day. There hasn't been one day since that time that I haven't felt horrible about what I did. At the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, just hours before he was to be executed, and as the prison was making Brown's last meal, in a 5-4 to four decision, the Washington State Supreme Court granted Brown's request to join the lawsuit of the other inmates. His execution was stayed, and the court sent the case to the Thurston County Court to determine whether lethal injection was constitutional. According to the same article by Rachel LaCourt, Dan Satterberg, the King County prosecutor, called the ruling cruel and unusual punishment to the victim's family. Holly Wash's family had driven two days from their home in Ogallala, Nebraska, to Seattle to witness Brown's execution. They had planned to hold a press conference afterward. On March 31st, another wrench was thrown into the equation. All four members of the Washington Lethal Injection Team resigned, saying they were afraid their names would be made public. Attorneys for the three inmates who had filed suit were challenging their qualifications and had requested records for the four-person team, saying they needed to review them to make sure all were qualified. On July 28, 2010, the Washington State Supreme Court ruled unanimously that Brown's execution could proceed because the state's lethal injection protocols had changed. An execution date was set for September 10th. In a news release, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg said, It is time to respect the jury's verdict reached more than 16 years ago. Cal Brown's sadistic and predatory crimes rank him among the worst of the worst criminals in our state, and there can be no doubt against his guilt. If we are serious about having a death penalty in the state of Washington, then it is time to carry out that sentence. Further delay cannot be justified. This according to a July 28, 2010 article by Scott Sunday at seattlepl.com. On August 1, 2010, U.S. District Judge John C. Koffenauer denied yet another appeal from Brown's defense team wanting to challenge the qualifications of the lethal injection team for the new one-injection protocol, saying other courts had already answered this question. Brown, however, was not done fighting. He appealed to the Washington State Supreme Court and the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for an emergency stay of execution. On Saturday, September 4th, the Ninth Circuit Court denied his request. 
his appeal was based on the argument that his death sentence should be reversed because it did not take into consideration his bipolar disorder. On Tuesday, September 10th, three days before his scheduled execution, Brown appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay of execution. He challenged Washington's new one-drug lethal injection protocol, the authority of the Department of Corrections to obtain the drug, as well as the qualifications of the execution team. On the morning of September 8, 2010, a King County Superior Court judge who had ruled that Brown's bipolar disorder diagnosis did not make him unfit to stand trial, upheld her previous ruling. Governor Chris Gregoire later released a statement that said she was denying clemency to Brown. That afternoon, the Washington State Supreme Court denied Brown's request for an emergency stay on the basis that his mental illness was not properly considered in his trial sentencing. The only remaining hope Brown had was either that the U.S. Supreme Court would agree to hear his appeal or that he could appeal the ruling from the King County judge to the Washington State Supreme Court. The next day, September 9th, the U.S. Supreme Court announced that they had declined to hear Brown's case. The Washington State Supreme Court and the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals also both declined to stay his execution. Holly Wash's family would not have to wait any longer. Brown was going to die by lethal injection. On September 9, 2010, more than 16 years after he was sentenced to death for his unspeakable crimes against Holly Washa, Cal Brown was taken out of his cell and led to a holding cell above the execution chamber. He had eaten his last meal beforehand, pizza with apple pie and root beer. Brown's family did not attend, but he had spoken with them and his attorneys on the phone for a few hours. A candlelight vigil was held that evening at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, to honor Holly Washa and to show how much they valued all human life. The candles were lit to represent both Holly Washa and her killer. Another vigil was held in Spokane by the Peace and Justice Action League of Spokane, who met on the steps of the courthouse. Some of them stayed in the cold to wait until after Brown was executed to protest the event. Brown did not apologize to Holly's family. Instead, he said he understood how they felt about him and that he forgave them and he did not hold any enmity toward them. He said he hoped his death would provide closure to them, saying, I understand your feelings and your hatred for me, the actions I took against your daughter and sister. I hope the actions taken tonight give you the closure you seek. This, according to a September 10, 2010 article in the Seattle Times by Jennifer Sullivan, Brown also took the opportunity to complain about his execution compared to serial killers like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, who was in prison for life without parole after pleading guilty to killing 48 women. According to a September 9, 2010 article by Shannon Denini and Nicholas K. Garenios in the San Diego Union Tribune, Brown said, I only killed one victim. 
I cannot really see that there is true justice. Hopefully, sometime in the future that gets straightened out. The difference between the two killer situations was that Ridgeway had not gone to trial. Instead, he accepted a plea deal that spared his life in exchange for the names of his victims and the location of their bodies. Just before the drug was administered, Brown said, Thank you, God bless you, and God bless my family. He was dead after about 90 seconds. Holly's father, John, her brother, Roger, and her sisters, Becky and Karen, attended the execution, traveling to Seattle from Nebraska. Her sisters sat in the front row with unopened tissue boxes. They echoed a sense of relief afterward, knowing they would never have to think about Holly's killer ever again. They had waited nearly two decades for full justice. In 2014, Governor Jay Inslee put a moratorium on capital punishment in Washington. It was officially abolished in 2018 when the Washington State Supreme Court determined that it violated the state constitution. Holly Wash's killer was the last person to be executed in the state of Washington. Not long after Brown's execution, Holly's paternal grandmother, Ruth Seal Washa, died at the age of 90. Holly's father, John Washa, died three years later in May 2013. He was 69 years old. Holly was buried in Ogallala Cemetery in her hometown of Ogallala, Nebraska, with her parents, John and Dorothy, and her brother, Paul. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Sources for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. Thank you to Ashley H. and Just For Fun 20 for becoming Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you guys so much. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. I've been doing a lot of fun interactive Q&As on IG stories, so follow me on Instagram at MurderishPodcast if you want to participate. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. <laughs>